So uh, as you heard in the announcements, today's kind of like back to school, if you will. If you have children in the children's church, um, it's parent day. So we do encourage you to go and meet with your kids, go to church with your kids and with Christy in the back room there. Uh, that's going to be this service as well as next service. Uh, welcome to Element. My name is Eric. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Element. And Aaron has the day off. Uh, some of you may know he's recovering from surgery, so he's not supposed to be talking until Wednesday, uh, which I haven't talked to him all week, which is kind of amazing, actually. But um, anyway, I'm glad to be with you here. Um, we do have Bibles in the back. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to uh, take one of those. If you forgot your Bible, you can use one of those. And um, I don't know if the slide's up. Oh, if you have a smartphone, this is so cool. I, I love it. I, I, I kind of feel a little guilty. I don't bring my Bible to church anymore because I have this big smartphone, and I use the YouVersion uh, Bible, and you can click on the Live button, and it has all of the sermon notes, and you can actually put in prayer requests and email them to us, and uh, it's, it's just really awesome. We're so technological. Um, and we do have actual paper sermon notes on the communion tables as well. So uh, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Proverbs sixteen eighteen. It says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Proverbs eighteen twelve, Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. Let's pray. Father, we lift this morning to you. We pray that you would show us what pride is and, and how it affects us and that you would show us what true humility is, Lord. Father, it's so deceptive sometimes, and I pray that uh, you would help us to see that in our own lives and that you would help us to see the cure for that as well. So we lift this time to, uh, to you. We pray that you would speak to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So, uh, are you glad that summer finally... Showed up for at least a few days. Um, so I know some of you thought that we were actually finished with Esther. You thought we finished that last week, and technically we did, but uh, we couldn't find anybody to take the decorations down, so we figured we just had to keep going. No, no, really. Actually, I I've enjoyed Esther so much that I, I thought I just had to revisit it one more time. And as we've seen going through the book of Esther, Esther is all about story, like Aaron had talked about last week. But this week, though, I wanted to focus a little bit more on Haman's story, because Haman's story is one of the most vivid case studies in the Bible regarding pride and humility. And it illustrates much about what the Bible has to say and what the Bible says happens when uh, people let pr uh, pride rage unchecked in their lives. It's vivid, and hopefully we're going to learn a lot by going through this. And uh, let me just say that we need to take this lesson seriously, because literally it might save your life. I'm not exaggerating. I'm totally serious. And I have to admit right up front, I'm way in over my head in preaching about pride because nobody is immune to it. We are all at war with this deadly and subtle sin that so easily affects us. And what we're going to see today, hopefully, is that there are three primary things that we need to learn about pride. And that is the character of pride, what it is, the deadliness of pride, what it does, and the cure for pride. So we're going to be back in Esther. I'm going to start in Esther chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, turn to Esther chapter 3, and we're just going to uh, go through that fairly quickly. Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. Haman was basically given the highest position in the Persian court. He was essentially the prime minister, which was a remarkable achievement. But he must have been a particularly obnoxious person. You see, because bowing down in traditional society was instinctive. People would just naturally bow down to those who had a higher position or to those who were older than they were. And the fact that the king had to command people to bow down and pay Haman honor, it shows us that he was not worthy of their respect and their honor. This was kind of like the king's earlier decree to force all wives to submit to their husbands because the king couldn't get his wife to do what he wanted. I mean, basically, it's, it's ridiculous, and it betrays the fact that the king was not worthy of respect and submission. The same thing goes for Haman here in verse 2. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. And then the officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. And yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. <clears throat> Mordecai wouldn't bow. And for Haman, it wasn't just an issue that this one man wasn't giving him the respect and the honor that he wanted. This was a reminder to Haman of what he already knew in his heart of hearts, that in spite of the great power and in spite of the great position that he had, he didn't get the respect and the approval from people that he felt he needed. And so what we see here that his ego and his pride ultimately became his idol. Everything that he did was in service to this idol. When his pride was stroked, he felt happy and he felt, he felt blessed. But when his pride was hurt, he became irritated and he was enraged. And we see the result here in chapter 3 when Haman not only wants to destroy that which bruised his ego, namely Mordecai, but he also wants to destroy the possibility of it ever happening again by any of Mordecai's people. And so this leads to Haman's incredibly evil plot to annihilate the Jews and the royal edict to destroy them, as we've already seen. And then we move to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we saw how Esther executes this subtle plan to save her people by inviting only Haman to this private feast for the king. And after that feast was finished, we pick it up here in Esther 5 in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. So Haman, he returns from this feast in high spirits. And not just from the effects of the alcohol, but also from the intoxicating effects of prestige that he so deeply needed. He felt significant, having been invited to this intimate party with just the king and just the queen. And then the queen, for her to ask him to attend a second private party. I mean, wow, talk about a good mood. I mean, he was happy. His pride was being stroked, and he felt really good. But the problem is, when pride is our idol, it doesn't take much to spoil and to take away that happy mood. And that's what happens to Haman here in verse 9. Haman went out that day, happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. 
Haman can't believe it. I mean, even after this royal decree goes out to destroy all of Mordecai's people, here's Mordecai again, sitting at his desk, calmly, completely dissing Haman. Not rising, not bowing, not trembling in fear. Haman's joy suddenly turns to wrath. And his fragile ego around which his whole world had revolved is bruised and it's beaten. And even though nothing really changed for him, Haman's power wasn't diminished in any way by Mordecai's refusal to bow, but this, his emotional strings were pulled by his idol of public respect. He was like a yo-yo, and when his pride was challenged, it led him to anger and it led him to malice. So his joy and his anger were like outward expressions of his pride, of his heart's idolatry. And we see in verse 10, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And so Haman, looking to bruise his dented ego, he goes home, he calls his friends, he calls his wife together, and he forces them to listen to this lengthy boasting session about just how great and how wonderful he really is. But the funny thing about this is Haman doesn't see how truly pathetic he is. And this is one of the things that we'll see later about pride. This is one of its dangers. It's deadly and it hides itself. The funny thing is, he just doesn't see it. I mean, give me a break here. He's recounting to his wife about how many sons he had. I mean, like she could really forget about that. I mean, maybe some of you moms out there would occasionally like to forget how many sons you have, but you just can't do that, right? It, it, it just doesn't work. I know that. And I'm sure that his wealth and his status before the king, that was old news to his friends as well. But after recounting all of his many blessings, Haman states that it's all worth nothing as long as Mordecai is around to remind him that he's not worthy of Mordecai's respect and honor. So what do Haman's wife and friends tell him? Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. Seventy-five feet. That's over seven stories tall. I mean, this is absurd. You'd have to build a huge structure just to be able to use it. I mean, it's crazy. But because his friends and his family, they knew the size of Haman's pride and his resulting anger, they thought that the only way to make him feel better was by a giant-sized vengeance. That's the only thing that would work. But unfortunately, this only fed Haman's pride. That's why he was delighted by the whole idea. And so what do we learn from Haman's story? What do we learn from this story about pride? First of all, the character of pride. What is it? According to the scriptures, pride is concentration on the self. It's self-absorption that results in an overly high opinion of one's abilities and worth. But it can also result in an overly low opinion. And this is what makes it idolatry. It's putting yourself and whatever satisfaction that you get from yourself or others above worshiping God and above being satisfied in Him. C.S. Lewis defines pride like this, and I'm going to quote him throughout this message because I think he writes about this in, in an interesting way. C.S. Lewis says that pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. 
ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Pride makes everything about you. So you don't get into relationships or you don't take jobs or you don't do anything unless it makes you feel good about yourself. Nothing is about the thing that you're actually doing. Everything is about you and how it makes you feel. And this is why C.S. Lewis says that pride is essentially competitive by nature. He writes, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We see that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Then he goes on and he gives an example. He says, Lust may drive a man to have sex with a beautiful woman because he wants her, but pride will drive a man to have sex with a beautiful woman just to prove to everyone and to himself that he can do it and do it above all others. So a proud man, never he doesn't get any real pleasure from the woman. It's all about him. And so it is with everything else that he does. Pride turns everything into a means to an end. You never do anything for its own sake, just because it's the godly thing to do. It's always a means to an end of getting respect and getting approval. And that's why Haman, he gets no satisfaction from his accomplishments or his high position or his many blessings. He doesn't really care about the position or anything that he's doing. Haman wants people's approval and respect. And this is why C.S. Lewis says that it's sleepless. It's sleepless. It doesn't stop. And you can probably relate to this. It leads to this endless ego calculation. You're always adding things up in your mind. Am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting appreciated here? How does this make me look? You're always saying, you know, what about me? What about me? And therefore, in this self-absorption, this concentration on the self, we have to recognize that there are two forms of pride. First, you have the superiority form. And this is you know, commonly identified as arrogance or conceit by most people. There's this superior air where you just are constantly doing that ego calculation in your head and you're always comparing yourself and asking, you know, how do I look? What's going on? Am I being appreciated? How am I being regarded? All of those questions. And you feel like you're making out pretty well. You're doing the calculation and it's adding up okay. You're in the black in this case. But then there's also the inferiority form of pride. And this is where you're constantly down on yourself. You're very self-conscious. You don't like yourself or how you look and you're always beating yourself up. But you're just as self-absorbed. You're still doing the ego calculation. You're still comparing yourself. But in this case, you're just not faring so well. So you're adding it all up. And in this case, you're in the red. But we have to see that it doesn't matter. The result is actually the same. It's the same as, as the superiority form. We don't think of the inferiority form as pride, but it has much more in common with the superiority form than it does with true humility. You see, if we understand that pride is self-absorption, then we can understand more clearly what true humility really is. And Tim Keller says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Did you get that? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not being needy for approval or respect. You begin to relate to people and do things for the things themselves, not for approval or not to feel good about yourself. It's not all about you, in other words. That means that you're unneedy. You would know it. I mean, you would really know. And some people, you could probably recognize this. If you come across a truly humble person, what are they like? They're happy, and they just seem really easy to talk to. 
because they're not thinking about themselves. They're not adding it up in their mind. They're not doing that ego calculation. They're really concerned about you and how you're doing. They're not so concerned about themselves. It's just not happening. And so they're self-forgetful. So we, ha- we need to see that to be humble, that takes us to a place where we can just be relaxed and we don't have to do that. And we can have confidence in God. In the screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis, he writes these series of letters, and it's from senior, a senior demon to an apprentice demon. And he's writing about how to wage war against the enemy, the enemy being Jesus. And, and this is a battle for the souls of men. And so you have to put it in context. And he writes regarding tempting people with pride and false humility. And he says this. He says, You must conceal the real nature of humility. Let him not think of it as self-forgetfulness, but as a low opinion of his own talents and character. The enemy wants to bring a man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. Our enemy, you see, wants to turn the man's attention away from self altogether toward him and the man's neighbor. Remember, both vainglory and self-contempt equally keep the mind on the self. Both can therefore be a starting point for some wonderful contempt of other selves, other people, cynicism, and cruelty. We see that pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. So, what about the deadliness of pride? Number two, the deadliness of pride. Okay, you say, so what? Okay, pride is bad. I know it's bad, but how bad is it really? Pride is very bad. You know, Haman here, he wasn't satisfied with just killing Mordecai and then making him bow. He wanted to destroy the entire community of Jews. Thousands of people were going to die, no matter what. And thousands of people did die. Not the Jews, but other people died. And Haman himself also died. Everywhere in the Bible, we are told that pride goes before a fall. Pride goes before a fall. Pride was the original sin that turned Lucifer, the son of the morning, into Satan, the lord of darkness, the fallen one. And then he goes and he tempts Adam and Eve with pride so that they would seek to be their own gods. And that resulted in death and the fall of all mankind. And since then, the human nature of every person has been subject to pride and its consequences. Virtually every story of great men fallen in the Bible can be traced back to pride. Pride leads to devastation. Pride leads to destruction. Pride is deadly. Now, I know this is an extreme case, but we need to realize that all pride is deadly. How so? First, pride makes you a fool. It makes you a fool. This may not, may not seem like such a big deal, but pride keeps you from learning from your mistakes. Why? Because you're always self-justifying. A proud heart is always justifying itself. When a relationship fails or there's a falling out with someone or a job doesn't work out, your pride always blames it on someone or something else. It was him or it was her or it was them, but it's never you. You justify yourself and you just can't learn from your mistakes. You see, humble people, they're not always looking at themselves. They're not always standing on their own dignity. And and because of that, they can laugh at themselves and they learn really fast. Because when something goes wrong, they look for what they've done wrong. And even if it was only partly their fault, they find it and they learn from it and they grow. But proud people don't. And beyond not learning from mistakes in general, proud people don't learn from criticism in particular. 
one of the best ways that for us to grow as a person is to learn how to take criticism. But the superiority form of pride, when someone criticizes you, you dismiss them or you attack them and you don't learn from them. And in the inferiority form of pride, criticism so devastates you that when people even try to talk to you, you just melt. You just crumble and they just say, forget it. I, I don't even want to go there. And so you never learn anything because of that. And because you don't learn from your mistakes in general and you don't learn from your criticisms in particular, you are a fool. And you constantly make bad choices. You choose the wrong jobs. You choose the wrong boyfriends or the wrong girlfriends. You choose all kinds of things that are wrong. Why? Because you overestimate your gifts or you underestimate your gifts. You resent and you fear people that are above you. You find them threatening. And the people that you think that are below you, you disdain and you don't learn from them. And as a result, you're constantly making miscalculations and you're making the wrong moves, just like Haman does in this story. But pride doesn't just make you a fool. Pride also makes you evil. Again, pride is what made the devil the devil. Augustine wrote this, Christian theology has understood that pride is not one sin among many, but really the root under all of them. You see, pride is that hellish spiritual petri dish where it grows all kinds of other evil in your life. For example, um, take a look at bitterness. Some of us struggle with bitterness and with anger. And, you know, people have done bad things to us, and so we're bitter about it. But remember this. You can't stay angry at somebody or bitter at somebody unless you feel superior to them. There is no bitterness without pride because you're saying, I would never do anything like that. Or if your life is distorted by, you know, anger like Haman's was, it's because pride was at the root of it. Or think about fear and worry. You know, some of us deal with paralyzing fear, and we, we deal with worry. And where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we think we, need, we know how things ought to go. We know how the things, things should go in the course of history. And if they don't go that way, it's going to be a disaster, and we worry and we're afraid about it. Well, how do you know how things are supposed to go? You just know. Well, how do you know? You just know. That takes arrogance to think that. It takes arrogance not to believe that God knows better how things are supposed to go. So pride leads to being opinionated, which nobody likes. Pride leads to being indecisive because in the inferiority form, you're afraid of making the wrong choice or the wrong move and how you might look. Pride leads you to be too shy. Pride can lead you to be too abrasive, which is a superiority form. And every day, every day in the news, we see the evil of pride. A teenager hires other teenagers to kill her parents. Newborn babies are left in a dumpster. Or a father sits down with his family for dinner at a mall to have a burger, and they get shot by gangs because of gang pride. All of these are the result of pride in some form. But that's not all. Sounds like an infomercial, right? That's not all. Pride makes you a fool. Pride makes you evil. But on top of everything else, what makes pride deadly is that pride hides itself. As bad as pride is, pride is the one sin that hides itself. It's like the carbon monoxide of sin. It kills you without you even having the ability to tell it's really happening. It's odorless. By definition, the more proud you are, the more in its grip that you are, the less proud that you actually think you are. For example, think about it. You know when you're committing adultery, right? You never say, oh my gosh, you're not my wife. What happened? 
You know, or, or you know, if you're in, if you're embezzling money, you never say, well, how did that two hundred thousand dollars get into my account? No, you know, you know when you're lusting, you know when you're angry, you know those things, but you usually don't know when you're proud. I mean, I've heard all kinds of sin confessed over the years, but I've never heard anybody come to me and say, I have a problem with pride. And maybe because it's just so prevalent, you know, we just assume that's the way it is. But just to show you how inescapable it is, up to now, and during this sermon, how many of you have been thinking about somebody else? Anybody? Have you been thinking about somebody? That sounds just like him, or that sounds just like her, rather than thinking about yourself. You know, this actually happened to me as I was putting together this message. I was writing the sermon, and uh, I'm thinking about what's happening here. And as I got into it, I began thinking about my dad's life. He spent all of his energies trying to desperately be seen as somebody. And this led to various forms of lies and deceit of every kind. And ultimately, it resulted in broken relationships, broken relationships with his parents, broken relationships with his siblings, broken relationships with his four wives, broken relationships with all of his children, all the result of pride. And he's justified every single one of them. And about two weeks ago, I get a call. After not talking to him for about 13 years, I get a call, and his last marriage has just crumbled, and he was arrested, and he's being restrained from his own house. And now he's calling me. He's critically ill, and he's in a a rehab facility, and he's absolutely all alone, all the result of pride. But now the ball's in my court. And now I'm having to face squarely my own pride. What am I going to do? You know. So we tend to look at other people, but we have to look and focus on pride in our own lives. There's at least one more thing that makes pride so deadly. And this is the one, this is really probably the worst thing about pride. Pride can come in any form of religion. You see, religiosity can kill off lust, it can kill off materialism and all kinds of other sins to a great degree. But it can just make pride worse. There is no pride like religious pride. Jesus had plenty to say about the pride of the Pharisees. And for someone to tell you you know, that God is great and that you need to obey Him will not necessarily decrease pride at all. Jonathan Edwards, on his sermon uh, on humility, he says that, to know that there is this great infinite God of holiness and justice does not create humility because you will either try to live up to that God's standard and become a self-righteous Pharisee or you will feel like you can't live up to that standard and you will feel crushed, which still makes you proud and self-absorbed. Religion just magnifies the superiority and the inferiority forms of pride, actually making it worse. It will make you feel more self-conscious and, and more like a failure or it will make you feel more superior than everyone else. Like you have the truth and you'll begin to look down your nose at other people. Religion can kill off all kinds of other sins, but it's like pouring gas on a fire to try and deal with pride that way. So what do we do? What's the cure for pride? And there is a cure for, for pride. Back to the story. At, at the beginning of Esther chapter 6, Haman's coming to the king, and as we've seen, you know, Haman was not just satisfied with killing Mordecai, and he's not even just satisfied with killing all of his people, but he wants to make a public spectacle of Mordecai. He wants to ask the king for special permission to make a public spectacle of Mordecai and hang him in this public place. And if you remember the story, you remember that that night the king can't sleep, so he has the book of the Chronicles read to him. And there he discovers that Mordecai actually saved his life by uncovering this assassination attempt 
on his life. But Mordecai was never rewarded. And so Haman just happens to be coming in to the courtyard as the king is looking for advice on how to honor Mordecai. And so the king asked Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman here, desperately needing respect, desperately needing approval, desperately wanting honor and glory, thinking that the king is talking about him, he comes up with this fascinating proposal in verse 7. And so answered the king, and so he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have him bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, if you remember the story, you remember that the robes carried great significance. For the king to put his own royal robes on someone was more than just giving him honor. When Pharaoh put the robes on Joseph, Joseph actually partook of his own position. And when Jonathan, he gives the royal robes to David in 1 Samuel 18, it's Jonathan's way of saying, I love you and you should be the king, not me. And so for the king to put his own royal robes on someone was not just saying, I honor this person, but it was saying, I delight in this person. I love this person. And this is what Haman truly craved. He thought that if people out there saw that I'm loved like that by somebody as great as that, that I'm loved by the king, then they'll know, then I'll know my value, my worth. And you see, that's what we all really need. That's what we all really need. We just don't want love, but we want someone that we think the world of, thinking the world of us. Somebody's put it like this. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Haman is saying that if I had that, the king putting his robes on me, the king loving me like that, then I would know. Then everybody would know. But as you remember, to Haman's absolute shock, the king says in verse 10, Go at once, do that to Mordecai. You you take the role of the servant, you put the robes on Mordecai, you lead the horse, you proclaim my delight in him. And it's an astounding and an incredible reversal of fortune. And whether Haman realized it or not, it's because he lifted himself up in pride that he was brought down. And this is exactly what the scriptures tell us everywhere about pride it grows it goes across the board through all of life if you humble yourself you will be exalted if you exalt yourself you will be humbled again c.s lewis says lose your life to find it does that sound strange it works in everyday matters as well in social life you will never make a good impression on people until you stop trying so to make a good impression on people in literature and art you will never be original until you stop trying so hard to be original The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. Why is this a principle of the universe that if you seek to lift yourself up, that you will be brought down? It's because it's the nature of God who made the universe and who made you and who made me You see, what Haman was asking for here is something that we all want. We want someone of ultimate glory loving us. Not love in general, but we need that ultimate assurance of who we are, ultimate assurance of our worth. 
We need somebody that we think the world of, thinking the world of us. We need the praise of the praiseworthy. You see here, Haman did not ask for the wrong thing. That's why Tim Keller says it like this. Haman didn't ask for the wrong thing. He asked the wrong king. He didn't ask for the wrong thing. He asked the wrong king. Because there's a better king with ultimate glory who came to earth, stripped himself of his glory, and when he went to the cross, he was also stripped of his father's love and his father's approval because he was reversing places with us. Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the king of glory who at infinite cost to himself, he reversed places with you and with me. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that we could be robed with his righteousness. He takes what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. Jesus, when he was praying for all who follow him, praying to his Father in John 17, verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. This is amazing. Glory is honor. Glory is delight. We see here that the praise of the ultimate praiseworthy, the glory and the honor and the robes of the ultimate king of the universe are yours and they're mine. And when you know that he loves you like that, when you realize that he went through all of that for you, that is what our ego, that is what our heart needs to finally make it self-forgetful to finally put ourselves aside, to finally be at rest, to finally fill it so we're just not needy anymore. To know that he had to die to save you, that humbles you. And to know that he was glad to do it, that affirms you. When you finally realize that Jesus Christ, he was strong enough to be weak, then you can be strong enough to be weak. You can be strong enough to do the right thing, to consider others more than yourself. You'll be strong enough to learn from your mistakes, to take jobs and have relationships that don't just make you feel good about yourself, but that are pleasing to God because they're just the right thing to do. Finally, you will be able to relax and not lift yourself up or not put yourself down. That's what we all need. The Old Testament prophet, uh, Jeremiah, he gets to the heart of pride and humility. In Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5, it says, This is what the Lord says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes, like now. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Pride is the result of our fallen and deceitful hearts. We are so easily deceived that we don't see the truth about ourselves and about God and the... And in pride, we believe the lies that we're better than we really are or that we're worse than we really are. Real humility comes from seeing and accepting the truth about who God is and about what he's done for us and seeing the truth about who we are. It's seeing ourselves the way God sees us, 
because that is reality. If we don't face the truth that God reveals to us, then we naturally begin to trust in ourselves. We trust in man and we depend upon flesh for our strength. That's ourselves. And our hearts turn away from the Lord. But if we're willing to see and accept the truth about God and ourselves, it leads us to trust Him and to have confidence in the Lord alone. Then we will be able to humble ourselves and our pride will rightly shift from ourselves to where it truly belongs in God alone. The Apostle Paul, he put it simply in 2 Corinthians 10.17 when he said, But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's our call today. The band's going to come up. And as we go to communion like we do every Sunday, this is really the only reason we have to boast because Jesus humbled himself. Jesus was God, humbled himself, taking on the form of a man. He came and he reversed places with us and he took our sin upon himself and he died so that we could live. And so as we come to communion, as you take that cracker and you break it, we remember his body that was broken for us. And as you take it and you dip it in the wine or you dip it in the grape juice, we remember his blood that was shed for us. And so we worship God in that way. And we're going to worship God with everything that we do this morning, with all that we have. We worship God with our gifts and our offerings. We have offering boxes on the side walls and in the back. We give to God because he gave so much to us. We're going to worship God through song as we contemplate the the words of the songs that we're singing. We're going to worship God through fellowship. We invite you to stick around and enjoy some snacks in the back and get to know one another, fan each other off. And, and, And if you need prayer this morning... If you realize that you, know, you, have, you have some needs and you want to pray, there are going to be elders or deacons in the back to pray with you. And if you don't want to pray back there after the service, they'll be up here waiting for you as well. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and mercy in our lives. Father, may we boast in what you have done and only what you have done because, Lord, we have nothing that you haven't given to us. Everything we have comes from you. All of the blessings come from you. And so we have no reason to boast. And our salvation is from you. We can't earn it. There's nothing we can do. And so we thank you for your grace and your mercy. This morning, help us to see pride in our own lives. Help help us to see how it affects us. Father, help us to be self-forgetful, that we could focus on you and focus on others, and that we could take joy in all that you give to us. We lift this day to you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.